forget to rate our show and subscribe. Before we begin this podcast, if you or someone you know is in crisis or needs emotional support, there are tools that can help. So get yourself a pen and paper or open a note-taking app on your phone or computer. Feel free to pause this episode while you get yourself ready. The episode starts at 1 minute and 52 seconds. You can call Talk Suicide Canada at one 456 4566 You can text 45645, which is coming in the fall of 2023. In Canada, you can also call 988, the Kids Help Phone at one 800 668 6868. The Trans Lifeline in Canada is 1 877 330 6366. And in the United States, 1 877 565 8860. Or call 911. You are not alone, and you do not have to be alone. I would like to honor and recognize the traditional and unceded territories of the Katsi, Kwantlen, and Semiamu nations on whose territory I live, work, and play. Welcome to We Are the ADHD Family Podcast. This podcast is meant to chronicle our journey with ADHD, autism, and other discoveries along the way. I reach out to advocates, experts, individuals, and other families that want to raise their voices and empower those on their journey. My name is Mark Smeets, and I am passionate about removing barriers for others through creating connections and building on strengths and practical problem solving. I am married to Siobhan, a parent to two wonderful kids, and all of us have ADHD. I want you to feel like you have power and hope. And now, into the episode. Owen, what's up? What's up in the sky? It's the sun. <laughs> this is the next part of my conversation with Melissa Madison. Melissa was Owen's grade two teacher. We are discussing practical ways that parents and teachers can work together to navigate the system and how to be more effective advocates. If you want to get more into Melissa's background, go back to part one. In the previous episode, we discussed topics like how to get the voice of your child into the discussions, stereotypes, why they hurt, and how they manifest in the system that we currently have. And also, we dove into my experience about being held back a grade when I was my son's age and the impact that it had on me. I hope you enjoyed the next part of the episode. Here's here's a bit of a, because you mentioned early intervention, which I absolutely love, because um, you and I, I mean, we're on the same page as far as that goes. But when you have things like, because right now there's a push that, um, you know, like I, I look at what Dyslexia BC wants to do and get the early, diagnose, you know, the early interventions in for school, and I'm all for it. Um, you know, where, is there a way to help support that? process i guess is maybe the word i'm looking for i'm not sure i'm not sure if i'm asking the right question there yeah like how can a teacher sort of i guess promote that side of it as well um well i think with any um any circumstance uh hmm. if the parents aren't willing then there's only so much we can do um so we do not have the power to diagnose we do not have the power to share information um you know with doctors or counselors or anything like that unless you've filled out consent forms all sorts of things right so the parent really is um you know that that linchpin to things taking off or not um so early intervention is great but 
we also have to remember, okay, how early is early intervention? Well, if it's as early as it should be, it's before they're in the public school system. (laughs) So that all falls on parents, right? Um, To, to research and to understand and to get, you know, their, their doctors on board and things like that. Um, But in, in terms of once they're within the school system, um, you know, teachers overall are going to be, you know, or should be using what we call universal design. So universal design is the idea that the strategies that I'm choosing to teach, to behavior manage, to assess, are meeting the needs of 99% of my students, whether they're neurodiverse or not. So if, for instance, having a visual schedule for everyone in the class Mm -hmm. is you know, helpful for everyone. Um, But it also is super detrimental to that child with autism or anxiety, let's say, that needs to know what's happening throughout the day and when it's happening. So that's a good example. So, so using, um, you know, universal design is kind of the benchmark for how teachers are teaching, you know, generally meets most needs. That's not always the case, but that's the hope, right? So, Early intervention then becomes what kind of additional supports can we get in place for that child? So, um, you know, this is when we often will have, um, you know, those those parent meetings where we're saying, this is what we're noticing. Tell me more about this. Um, And then letting the parent know that you will be. Uh, referring their child to what we call school-based team. And so there's Mm -hmm. a documentation process that happens for the classroom teacher, and they have to go through all of these steps before school-based team meetings will even be set. So when I say school-based team, uh, I'm talking about classroom teachers, LST, IST, uh, speech and language, counselors um, that are involved, and administration. So it's basically all, all of the external what we call non-enrolling uh, positions within a school setting um, outside of just the classroom teacher. So the classroom teacher, part of the uh, process for even just getting a referral into school-based team to be evaluated, uh, we have to have parent meetings. We have to uh, read the child's file from previous years to see um, what interventions were put in place, what supports were there, um, if there was any behavior documentation, um, and so on. We have to do our research and our due diligence as professionals to find out as much as we can about that child before we can even put the paperwork in to have school-based team then look at all of it too. Yeah. So, um, you know, where the public school system falls very short on early intervention is um, is just how underfunded and uh, the crisis of of not having enough um, specialist teachers and early intervention people even available. So, sure, we offer speech and language pathologists, but that one individual is stretched between oh. five schools yes. and only has one um you know one service day at your child's school per week and they have a caseload of 200 students just at that one site who need servicing yeah so you're yeah. lucky if your child is able to access that service once a month <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know so then we we fall incredibly short yeah. Um, so getting, getting, if you can, if you have benefits and, 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 um, access to outside agencies or private support, even though those wait lists are also usually quite extensive too, yeah. um, right. And, and there's, I mean, there's so many systemic issues that, you know, cause these barriers, but, um, 
but yeah, so early intervention is key. However, there's a lot of barriers around actually having it happen once the child is within the school system. Well, and it was it was funny because in the notes that you and I made um, for talking about this, like the question that you wrote down, you know, thinking about your experience, what barriers existed for mm. you slash your child as you navigated the public school system, mm. um, you know, that was certainly one of them. And I remember meeting with the SPT, which is just the acronym for school-based team. Mm. And I, you know, we couldn't afford to go private. Again, the wait list was, is, is ridiculously long. And especially with what happened with us at Sunny Hill, like, come on, the, mm. And God knows we didn't want to have a repeat of what happened when he was four years old. But then trying to get things like a psych ed, oh, we'll put him on the wait list. And then hearing from one of the psychologists that, um, you know, they could do an autism assessment, but he's way down on the priority list. And realizing that the only thing on the priority list is actually the kids who are really aggressive. Like, no. And how many psych eds does the school district do a year? I got quoted, uh, and I, I will not say who, but they quoted me four. I've heard some districts do two. And I'm yeah. like, this is pathetic. This is, <laughs> I, I, this would, is... I would dispute that because I've known <laughs> certain school sites that I've worked at that, um, you know, that have have several, um, you know, eight, nine, ten site guides done in, in a, a school year. It doesn't seem like much. But again, when the only person who could administer a site guide is the district psychologist who's yeah. serving the entire district, <laughs> the wait lists are insane, right? Yeah, yeah they are. And it's also a multi-day process. Yes. So there's that too. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, those are the barriers that I found that getting to like the things that you had set up or getting to the principal or whoever the LST was or IST or any of those, that piece isn't so difficult, mm -hmm. but trying to have a, but trying to trigger a mechanism that's going to get your kid more support that is where it's really, I find, that's where I, I think the rubber meets the road. Yeah. And that is what makes it really tough. And there was a meeting I was in yesterday with um, with a government official, and they had asked the group for, you know, solutions and such. And the way that they came up with this, the, the way that they were looking for solutions from all these advocates that were in this meeting, it was almost like, you know, here's a solution. Oh, okay, thank you very much. But when this when it came to, when it came to, I guess the word would be, you know, maybe implementing it or seeing what the realistic real the the realistic side of that might be. Oh, we don't like that solution. Well, what do you want? Then? <laughs> like that is the frustrating piece that that bureaucracy gets in the way of that, and it shouldn't take four years to get a dyslexia test or a psych ed or anything like that. It shouldn't do that, and it shouldn't. If you if we if somebody's got extended benefits and they're able to afford it, I'm very happy for them. I really, I truly, honestly am. Some families like us. We're not able to afford that. And that's a big deal. We didn't find in we didn't find a barrier in terms of the attitude of things, the, mm -hmm. the stereotypes and stuff, but more in just trying to get the answers that we wanted more than anything else. So I wanted to touch on what you were talking about around um 
the bureaucracy and the systemic kind of um, barriers and shortcomings that kind of um, make the process for diagnosis and early intervention uh, troublesome. And obviously, I need to be, you know, careful um, <laughs> about kind of how I, I phrase, um, you know, this next answer, I guess, to um, to one of the questions around kind of shortcomings and things like that, um, because I really do believe in the public school system. And I, I've seen year after year after year, um, you know, dedicated staff working to support students, um, yeah. even with all of these systemic shortcomings um, that hinder our process. <laughs> um, but I will say that um, you know, the kind of the number one barrier up against really anybody, whether it's a family with a neurodivergent child or not, um, is just the consistent underfunding um, of the public education system, right? So, um, you know, people, there's there's a cliche around, you know, teachers begging for more money for the public school system, right? And and that's, you know, they've been crying for that for years. And, you know, the government just pushed one point whatever million into this school yeah. district. And, and it's distorted. It is so incredibly distorted. Yeah. Um, you know, if we think of even just what the salary of one speech and language pathologist would be, <laughs> and you want that, you know, one person to service 2,000 children yeah. um, across multiple school sites, right? Like, it just, you know, I don't think people realize that, um, you know, you ultimately you put money where you care about things, right? So you put time, you put effort, you put money where you care. And so... You know, I'm not saying that the government doesn't care per se, but what I am saying is that I don't think that they recognize and therefore how it's portrayed to the media, how it's portrayed to the people that are not in the system working it with these shortcomings and underfunding, yeah. um, that it's, it's framed in a way that makes the public education system look greedy, um, look ungrateful per se, but I don't think that there's an understanding truly of where funding goes and oh. how it's allocated. And so, you know, if we're up against those things already, just underfunding, that has a direct effect on support hours that EAs give and, and jobs that are posted. Um, often districts will, um, you know, get so many designations that generate X amount of funding. And instead of that going directly to your child, it's allocated to the school as a whole. Yep. So then the administration and the IST teams and LST teams, you know, that whole school-based team then goes, okay, who's highest needs and reallocates the hours and the funding that your child brought in. And it's not necessarily going to them. Right. So so as a parent going, OK, we've gone through this whole process, years of process to get yeah. this diagnosis, to get this designation uh, within the public school system. What do you mean? My e my my child does not have an EA from yeah. Bell Bell. What do you mean? They're just getting support in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, yep. it, it, so there's so many pieces and so many moving pieces. And again, I will say that the, the staff within the school does everything they can to make yeah. 
do with what we're given, but we're given scraps at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Well, so- and and I, I mean, I think the other thing too is that, I mean, that's a pretty good explanation in terms of, you know, the things that, you know, do happen and should happen. But the schools and the districts don't exactly publicize where the money goes or what student they don't you know that's not that's not talked about um the the management of it per se i also find that and again in the meeting that i had yesterday where um with the with the government official the just the attitude that i get and i mean i've this is not just a yesterday thing this is a in general thing is you know we've we you know we've even we've put in X amount of millions of dollars. Fantastic. It gets a, what have you done for me lately attitude, Mm -hmm. which is not the case. And it's also, I think, a very defensive thing. We're going to make an investment of of 22 million in, in this, and it's going to bring us this and this and this. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Way to go. Um, Is this going to solve this problem, this problem. No. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I understand that we have to expand, but we still have this problem over here. What are we doing? Yes. And that, and that brings me like almost directly to the second major issue that the public school system is up against, which is basically the disconnect between the network of policymakers and the ones who are actually on the ground running school. <laughs> um, right. So, so what I like to say is that, you know, the policymakers and the people that are in charge of making decisions about financial allocations, about um, new programs, about hiring, um, all of that stuff, educational policy in general, they are, they are stuck with what I like to call the balcony view, right? So they're looking, um, you know, at things, a very generalized sense, right? Going, okay, this program should hypothetically be funded by this 20 million that we're investing. Yeah. Okay. But when we actually look at how it's going to run on the dance floor, if you will, with the people who are actually working the dance floor, doing the movements, Mm -hmm. um, working with what, what the, you know, the balcony viewers are viewing, but they're actually in it going, okay, so this 20 million that you're saying is going to be allocated to this program, which is, you know, built to uh, support our neurodiverse learners. Um, But when you bring it down in actuality goes, okay, this was enough money to um, hire a manager and only two workers that need to run a program within this ratio Uh, for safety reasons. And so they can only run it with this funding. If you want this to, if you want this program to last for four years, they can only run it once a week or once a month. (laughs) Right. So so when you actually break down the numbers, it's all, it's all so skewed. Right. And, and, and that idea of what have you done for me lately? And it's like, aren't children at the very foundation of what we should be investing in and building yeah. up right like if well, and the prevention becoming adults and we're supposed to be building citizens of the world yeah <laughs> so you think well, that that's where we should be investing right like and, and not only that not only that i mean taking it a step further you look at what i mean again i'll just pick on dyslexia uh just because it just just because it's it's on my it's on the front of my mind when i think about it but you know treating 
you know, get, getting ahead of dyslexia at preschool or kindergarten is going to save that person's life in, you know, when they get into high school or after, or if they even make it through high school. Um, and, and that's a big, big, big deal because people that do drop out that are dyslexic, they, you know, a lot of them will suffer and mm-hmm. they'll end up on the street they'll end up on social assistance because you know they can't read that they they can't they 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 didn't have anybody advocating for that change or or the things are how they are now and you know you find a good teacher like you and you know maybe somebody'll get lucky and well and it. i think you know it it's reading is about it, it's it's equity right? Like it, it's the, the license to be successful in the world. And so, um, yeah, it just, it makes it so complicated to, um, do early intervention when we don't have the tools to do early intervention. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's all, there's, there's so much at work that makes the system challenging. And, you know, people would think, oh, well, that's a very grandiose statement to say that a child with dyslexia will end up on the streets. Well, it's not though. That's the thing because it's access to the world. Being able to read and write is access to the world. It's access to information. Right. And so, Um, you know, there are a ton of statistics around, um, you know, that basically they say that by the end of grade three, um, if a child is not reading at what is established at grade level expectations, that their, their rate of success just goes down by such a significant amount. And I, and I can't quote the numbers exactly because I can't remember them, but um, but the studies, yeah, show that basically by the, that end of grade three, that that is the dictating point of success for a child's academics and uh, dropout rates um, in high school and all of those things. So, so what you speak of is so real um, and not some false narrative or some um, victimhood mentality that, oh, well, if we don't support this child, he's going to be homeless and on the street. No, it's a very real possibility because reading and writing is access, right? If we're not providing access, then yes, statistically saying that that child is up against so much more and by the end of grade three. So if a child is not reading or writing within that grade level expectation by then, That already dictates their success as a 17 year old in grade 12 if they make it that far. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe we should, maybe that needs to be broken down a bit more because we're, I mean, you're saying, you know, they're not able to read by grade three, but read, I think, at some level or write at some level. It's not that anybody's going to be fully proficient at reading or writing by grade three. Like, No, and that's why I say um, according to grade level expectations, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so however the government has has coined that success marker, um, that's what they they use to determine. The conversation comes to a conclusion in the next and final episode. Looking ahead, we discuss closing the episode and wrapping up our discussion. We both give a summary of practical tips for parents and teachers reminding ourselves to always engage the student's voice and never assume you think you know what's best. And then we end with some fun word association. I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to our show.
If you're hearing this message, you've reached the end of the episode, and for that, I want to say thank you. I hope you have enjoyed what you've heard and are walking away with newfound knowledge. We are the ADHD family. See you soon for a new episode. I have three things to ask of you. Number one, if you have any comments, questions, or guest ideas, please leave a comment on the Facebook page. Number two, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps people find us. And number three, if you want to be a guest on the show or know someone who would make a great guest, contact me through our Facebook page. This podcast is open to everyone. You don't need to be an expert, just passionate and want to see change. The opinions expressed by the host and guest are not associated with any employer or organization unless otherwise stated. information on this site and podcast is provided as an information resource only and is not to be used or relied on for any diagnostic or treatment pro- purposes. This information does not create any patient-physician relationship and should not be used as a substitute for a professional diagnosis and treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider before making any healthcare decisions or guidance about a specific medical condition. The show, host, and its guests expressly disclaim responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of your reliance on the information contained in this site or show. By visiting this site and listening to this show, you agree to the by visiting this site and listening to this show, you agree to the terms and conditions which may from time to time change or be supplemented by the show host.